Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the We Redefine Radical So You Can Get a Raise edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I'm joined by my colleague Martin Sanbu, author of the book Europe's Orphan and an economics writer whose daily newsletter, Free Lunch, is a must-read for anyone who wants to keep up with the prevailing economics debates of the day. Martin and I will be discussing radical new ideas in economics. These are ideas that would have been unthinkable, or at least excessive, 10 years ago, before the financial crises in the U.S. and Europe, and before the emergence of populist frustration all throughout the developed world. Martin, thanks for being here. Good to be here. I have a personal question to ask before we dive into uh, our topic of the day. You have kind of an unusual background uh, for someone who writes about economics. You accompanied your economics education with a lot of philosophy. I did. I'm kind of curious to know how you still incorporate uh, ideas from philosophy in your economics writing now. Well, look, I think actually you do economics much better if you know a bit of philosophy. Uh, and it's actually quite quite clear in the uh, in the debate that's happening at the moment. There's a sort of criticism of economics, right? Not just that they sort of miss the crisis and they're bad at forecasting, but there's a lot of criticism. You see it in the UK. Students are asking for better, broader curriculums in in economics. They basically say it's hard to see how this is relevant. You also have this new book out by James Quack here in the US called Economism. And he says, well, there are a lot of people in policy who have taken like half an undergraduate course of Economics 101, and they think that the basic supply and demand graph is one that explains everything. And that's wrong. Now, I found throughout my life from being a student, but also in work today, that having kind of philosophical awareness allows you to look at a sort of basic economic argument and say, well, there are a lot of assumptions that go into this. Philosophical logic allows you to identify some of those assumptions and question them in a way that economists, just economics can't do, right? In economics, part of what you do is to you set some things aside, you simplify, you make some assumptions, that's fine. But we also need to think in terms of policy about whether the assumptions actually hold. So one very simple thing is, when we say that people maximize their utility, what does that mean? Does it just mean that they have a consistent set of choices? That's technically what it means. But in economics, everyone thinks it means that they're doing what's best for them. Well, that's actually a philosophical, moral theory. That's utilitarianism. A lot of problems with utilitarianism. And it's pretty good to know what those problems are before you jump to conclusions about normative policy, what should be, from a simple analysis of what is. So that's just one example of why I think uh, philosophy is very, very useful in thinking it, about economics. Yeah, and it also raises the question of what an economist should be or should do. The idea of positive versus normative economics um, has really become quite jumbled, I think, in the last, uh, I guess, generation or so of economists. In other words, should an economist always put aside political leanings or you know whatever his or her preferences are and just go wherever the data leads him or her, or should economists also, once they've discovered what they find to be you know, the truth about the world uh, in their models or in their observations, should they also advocate uh, for the things that they think would make the world a better place? I mean, it's, it's just very hard to have a completely positive economics, I think, positive in the sense of descriptive. I mean, you could, I suppose, just look at data, just try and find relationships, but even trying to come up with causal theories tends to involve assumptions about how people think, what they think is good for them, and this notion of interest, right? So 
the standard model in economics assumes that people act in their self-interest. But that's a pretty morally loaded term, and it behooves us to be a bit critical of what's what's sort of imported into that. And, you know, in a simpler way, economics is relevant in part because it helps us make choices, policy choices. And it wants to be that economists want to be relevant in terms of advice to policy, and that's how it should be. But let's do it well. Sure. Okay, uh, well, I'm excited about today's topic, which is uh, radical ideas. I should note that the, the descriptor radical is just something I'm using uh, to sell what I think is going to be a very fun podcast episode about ideas that I guess you would consider a cutting edge. These are ideas that have not really been implemented in any big scale. And I want to establish some ground rules. Okay, so when I say radical, these are not ideas that, that include like a revolutionary overthrow of liberal democracies or the markets-based system that we have now, um, whether we're talking about the more social democracies of Europe or the more capital-friendly environs of the U.S., right? In other words, this is uh, with an aim to preserving the current system, but ideas that have not yet been tried uh, but that are being vigorously debated now. So we're going to talk about their merits and the demerits, okay? Maybe Maybe we can call it radical centrism. Let's do it. The first idea we're going to discuss uh, is one that you've written about quite a bit, uh, usually advocating for it, usually strongly in defense of it. It's a universal basic income. For our listeners who aren't familiar with this idea, uh, why don't you take us through the basics of how it would work and tell us what problems it's meant to solve? Yeah. It's an alternative form of the welfare state, in a sense. So suppose you got rid of all the sort of welfare benefits and support systems you already have, and you replace it by a single policy. And the policy is you pay every individual or every household a certain small amount every month, enough to cover basic needs, unconditionally. So it's basic, it's unconditional, it's an income. You get it whether you work or whether you don't work. It means enough for subsistence. You know, people in the U.S. context, people will talk about, you know, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a year, that sort of thing. Uh, enough to live, but enough not enough to live well. Now, it's uh, actually not, it's radical, but it's not actually a new idea. It has some eminent American roots, actually. It was uh, advocated, the first proper formulation was Tom Paine, the revolutionary. I'm talking about the U.S. Revolution. Uh, 200 years ago, he wrote about this in, uh, in a piece called Agrarian Justice. His argument was, look, there are a lot of really rich people who get money just from owning land, But they were sort of lucky. They inherited the land or there was some unequal distribution to start with. But land is sort of the patrimony of all mankind. So it makes sense to charge a tax on the rent they get from the land and redistribute that in equal portions so everyone gets sort of their share of humanity's patrimony. Um, That's 200 years ago, right? So old-fashioned language and so on. But then the idea has kept coming back every couple of generations. And it was really big in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s and not – necessarily from the corners you'd expect. Milton Friedman, the you know the famous right-wing economist, free market economist, was very much in favor of this. He liked it because it would be much less intrusive than any other sort of um, uh, welfare state. It doesn't require bureaucrats to verify whether people are acting in the right way, behaving the, the right way, and so on. And very importantly, because it's unconditional and it's not withdrawn when you get a job or you get a better job or you work more hours, you avoid these cliff-edge, very high effective marginal tax rates that people on sort of lower middle income tend to have in in the U.S. and in most of Europe. So in the U.K., for example, if you earn about £15,000 a year, so that's, what, eighteen, twenty thousand $20,000, you will get some benefits, tax credits, 
And if you start going high above that, you're facing effective tax rates. So once you include the withdrawal of benefits, in the order of 70, 70, 75%. So if you think that taxes are bad for entrepreneurship and for work, then you really want to stop that cliff edge at lower incomes. It's higher than what most upper rate, you know, highest rate marginal tax rates are. So that's the sort of free market economists take. It almost became part of the U.S. system in the early 70s in the Nixon administration. It was proposed. It went some way through Congress, but it died in the Senate. Uh, And it died partly because of left-wing opposition, because it wasn't generous enough. Anyway, Alaska has something a little bit like it because it has this oil fund, the permanent fund, and it pays out oil revenues from that to the population on a per capita basis. That's the closest the world has seen to something like UBI. Although I, I believe Finland is about to uh, enact uh, an experiment for a small segment of its population uh, to see just what the effects would be. That's right. Finland is trying to put in place the real thing, but for a small sub- subset of the population. But they are choosing randomly, I think, a couple of thousand people. And it will be, I think it's on the order of seven, 800 euros a month, so almost $1,000 a month, certainly enough to, to live on. And again, it's unconditional. And they will run this for a couple of years to see, is there an effect? Do people actually stop working or work less? Because that's been one of the big arguments against it. If you just give people money for free, who's going to want to work? Well, Finland's one experiment. There have been other experiments uh, over the last couple of decades. Generally, it's very hard to find any work effect. People don't work less. If they do, it tends to be students who stay in school longer or perhaps women with very young children who stay at home longer with their children, not the very problematic sort of fall-off from the labor force that that we'd think about. But it hasn't been tried at scale, so we don't really know. But the Finnish experiment is probably the most involved experiment to date. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens. I have to say, I'm often very frustrated by the nature of the debate over a UBI. And the reason is that I see a lot of commentators, a lot of economists essentially talking past each other about, number one, which problem it's meant to solve, and number two, how it's designed, right? So there's one strain of thinking that says, well, UBI might be necessary someday, but not yet. And the day it becomes necessary is the day that essentially technology has replaced all of work you know, through automation. In other words, none of us will have a job because machines and robots will be doing those jobs, at which point we'll all need a UBI just to be able to live and also to provide demand in the economy because we'll have money to spend, right? But there's another strain of thinking that says no, and this is the one that I think you're pursuing, which is that it, it could be very valuable right now, essentially is either a complement to or a replacement of parts of the welfare state that now exists, right? Because that's a second issue also is, well, are you designing a UBI, a basic income, to effectively replace other things that exist now that are meant to provide uh, a little bit of subsistence help if you fall on hard times or are just you know generous tax benefits of the kind that, that a lot of people uh, of lower or middle income status get? Or is it meant to be a wholesale replacement of the system, right? Yeah. Uh, so it, there's a lot of kind of talking past each other about how it's designed, how generous it should be, and what problem it's meant to solve. Yeah, well, especially what problem it's meant to, it's meant to solve. I mean, I think what we want to do is to turn this around and say the fact that it might solve several problems should be a reason for creating alliances, 
So you see UBI at the moment in the U.S. is being supported by the the labor movement. So Andy Stern, who uh, who's a former trade union boss, um, has written a book called Raising the Floor, which advocates precisely this. But also you get Silicon Valley billionaires who foresee this kind of technological disruption you were talking about, the end of work, or at least the end of good jobs, because so much can be automated. And the fear is you'll get what you've found in manufacturing, but writ large across the whole economy. And uh, a UBI might be a solution to that. I mean, those aren't, those aren't opposite things, right? I would say it is certainly a, a good solution if there turns out to be a problem with jobs in the future. And then we should actually start thinking about it right now, because by the time a lot of people have lost their jobs or been forced into poverty wages because there's less demand for their work, it's a bit late. Mm -hmm. It's much better to have that in place beforehand, because one of the things that I think libertarians and people on the right might like about UBI is that it allows individuals to make choices for themselves, right? You're not trapped in... Uh, in a job if you know that you can leave and maybe set up something for yourself. So if you're in a, an industry that's ripe for disruption and a UBI system exists, you can take the chance of leaving your job, spend a couple of months, maybe a year, trying to set up something new, retrain yourself. All of these things become possible that now low- to middle-income workers can't really do because you know if you live paycheck to paycheck, you can't afford to lose a single one. So you just can't take that risk. So there's sort of a uh, a risk encouragement element to this, I think, is important. If we are going to introduce it anytime soon, uh, I think it has to be a, a replacement rather than a complement to the current welfare system because for it to have the effects proponents expect, it has to be done at scale and it has to be you know, big enough that it actually makes that difference. If it's 1000 a year, it's not going to make a difference. If it's 8000 10000 a year, it is going to make a difference. That is affordable, contrary to what some people say, but it would require cutting a lot of other things and removing a lot of loopholes in, in the tax system, including for the middle classes, uh, in order to, to pay for it. I should disclose my own bias here. I, I quite like the idea, um, but I want to give uh, due attention to some of the uh, other objections. You just raised, I think, one of them, which is that to be able to afford it, uh, essentially we're going to have to replace part of the welfare state, which is usually targeted uh, at the people that most need it. In order to have a payout that goes to everybody, including those that don't necessarily need it, is that the right thing to do? When you put it like that, it sounds crazy, right? <laughs> it sounds immoral. Uh, and, you know, different people would think of it immoral, uh, that it's immoral in, in different directions, if you like. There are those who think that there are a lot of deadbeats out there who, uh, you know, good for nothing, so we'll just get this money for free, and that's objectionable. There are others who would worry about why should you know, Bill Gates or the, or the Koch brothers get universal basic income. And, and both are fair points. But of course, you know, we should look at the net effect of this. You know, the, the amount you get in your monthly UBI check is not what matters. What matters is how much you get on net from the government. So for the rich, at least, they'll still be paying taxes, maybe higher taxes. Mm -hmm. Uh, in order to cover some of this. Um, so if you have to increase the highest marginal tax rate a couple of points, I mean, that will clearly be much more for the richest than what they might get back in this annual or monthly check. I mean, I actually think there's something to be said for a society that says even the richest are covered by a safety net at the bottom because that's a sort of solidarity of a society. Anyone 
if they ever fall on, you know, if they have a catastrophe, we're there to prevent uh, the worst. Of course, realistically, it'll never be necessary for a lot of those people. But if you're going to withdraw it from anyone, you have to decide when, and then you're going to create these cliff-edge taxes somewhere. So just from a purely economic perspective, if we worry about the disincentive effect of a 39.6 upper tax rate here or a 45% upper rate of tax in the UK, surely we need to worry much more about an effective 70-80% tax rate for the lower middle class. I think there are a lot of people out there who would take opportunities to better their condition, as Adam Smith sure. famously put it, and we're penalizing them with the current system, but we just don't see it because it's complex. So, so I would say, if we look at it for what it really is, the moral objections are a bit less uh, forceful, and the pragmatic considerations are really very, very strong, and we should take them seriously. Yeah, I, I would add uh, two more points here. One is that there's, uh, I think, quite a bit of debate over the extent to which people in the middle class and the rich would resent people who would be essentially subsisting off just the universal basic income uh, in a scenario like the one you just outlined. I have a feeling that it would go uh, exactly in the other direction. In other words, that because it is, in fact, universal, right, that because everybody is getting something out of it, that there would be less resentment towards people living off a universal basic income um, than there is right now towards people who subsist on targeted uh, welfare schemes. It would be hard for a middle-class family to resent somebody living off a universal basic income when they themselves are also benefiting from it in numerous ways, not the least of which is that it gives them a little bit of extra money for, I don't know, raising their kids, um, for saving for retirement, and also because it also gives them more bargaining power at work. In other yeah. words, that it, it gives them a, a bit of an outlet, a bit of a, a natural inbuilt safety net for themselves as well. And, and this, this thing about bargaining power, I think, is crucial. So there, there were a couple of studies over the last few years that measured how many Americans of all classes have enough in the bank to cover you know, unforeseen expenses. Uh, and there are millions, tens of millions of Americans, including very much middle-class Americans, who don't have enough liquid assets, money in the bank, to cover a small, you know, a $400,000 emergency, you know, a car repair, small medical bill. You, you mean a uh, 400 or a $1,000 emergency? Yeah, 400 not or 1,000, yes. <laughs> not <laughs> I mean, a $400,000 emergency. Something that can happen to a lot of people. Yes. Right? And this goes long, far into the middle class. It's not just something for the poor. So there's a vulnerability in society, perhaps especially in the U.S., but in many European societies too. And that insecurity, that risk, I think, is really grating. Um, it's, it's, it's really sort of gnawing at people. And one thing UBI would do is to make sure that this would never be a problem. Your life wouldn't be turned upside down by one of these smallish expenses. You wouldn't suddenly have to max out your credit card and never get out of credit card debt because somebody dented your car. Uh, so I think that's a story that's important to tell in the context of, of if we want to advocate UBI, that this is something that protects everyone well into the middle and upper middle class. But, you know, another way to think about it is, is this. Think about many of these uh, smaller towns, the left-behind places that we've talked a lot about over the last year during the election campaign in the U.S. and after Trump's victory. I mean, think about what difference a UBI would have made in small, some of these towns where manufacturing jobs have been lost. 
First of all, it would have avoided this, this cliff edge that I just talked about. You lose your job and suddenly you're desperate. You wouldn't be desperate. Second, some people who have the entrepreneurial energy would suddenly have the sort of capital you need to maybe try something else. You wouldn't have to desperately find another paid job, a low-paid job just to pay your bills. You could take some time to maybe set up a shop, set up, a, you know, go, go to college for a couple of or some training course for a couple of months without suddenly not knowing how you pay your bills at the end of the month. I mean, the sort of desperation that has happened in many of these places could have been prevented. And think about what people worry the most about, which is what future is there for my kids? If an 18-year-old who would normally have gone into the factory and got a job there without a college education now doesn't have that, that creates despair in many of these places, especially those who maybe don't have the ability to get into a good college, don't have the sort of mentality it takes to move to the city and try to do well. What would they do? Well, if they had a UBI they would actually have some time and some means to try to fashion a new future for themselves. Either they get a job and this tops it up so they can have some extra surplus to try looking for something else, or it would just allow a lot of talented young people out there to pursue those talents. And I think that's the sort of story you want to tell about UBI. That, that's what it's for. And it would have made a huge difference in the last 20 years in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, you just discussed some of the ways in which this would address the kind of regional inequality yes. problem that we just brought up. The other and just much more direct way is that a dollar of UBI would go further in some of these communities than it goes in New York City or San Francisco, which uh, these are cities with very high costs of living. I would add one point in closing, which is that I think a UBI would have to come with some kind of stringent rules attached or regulation. And I, I say that for the following reason. The financial sector has a kind of uh, innovative genius to figure out ways of getting you money uh, right now in exchange for uh, the promise of a future income stream, right? And I could see a situation where instead of uh, an 18-year-old uh, having a little bit of extra money for college or a little bit of extra money in order to pursue his or her talents, would end up having nothing because the financial sector found a way of getting that income stream to him or her in a lump sum when they were younger than that, and then they blew it on something else, right? right. And, you, and you the can, mother of all spring breaks. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you can imagine that happening in all kinds of other scenarios, not just for young people, but you know, for people in middle age uh, who essentially give away uh, their future income streams from UBI as collateral against big loans that they take in a lump sum in the present. Uh, I do worry a little bit that the financial sector would find a way to take advantage of that. I think that's a really good point, and I think you're right. I think they would, by law, this would have to be unencumberable in some sense that you can't actually hypothecate it for the future. You, it can never be taken away from you. I mean, that sort of lies in it being basic, right? And, and I would add another condition is who actually gets it, and it seems to me natural that it would be citizens who get it. And that might also address some of this resentment you see out there among people who feel that immigrants are getting all these benefits and Americans aren't getting anything. Uh, a lot of that is, is based on misperceptions. But this at least would be clear. It, it makes perfect sense to say this is for citizens. And once you've qualified to become a citizen, you can get it, but not until then. So politically, there might actually be something helpful in this in trying to, uh, to address some of that feeling of unfair treatment. Good point. Okay, let's go to uh, radical idea number two. A federal jobs guarantee, and this is exactly what the name sounds like. Um, <laughs> effectively, the federal government guarantees a job uh, for anybody who wants one. Um, 
essentially the right to work. It doesn't mean, obviously, forced labor of any kind. This isn't slavery. This just says the federal government will provide you with a job if you want one and perhaps if you can't pass certain criteria for the ability to get one, if you're unemployed, if you if you pass the criteria for what usually qualifies as unemployment, you can get a job provided to you by the federal government. Uh, let me just uh, lay out some numbers here real quick. These are from economists William Darity and Derek Hamilton from a recent study that they published. They estimate that it would cost about $50,000 per worker when you include worker compensation and all the bureaucratic costs that it takes to set up a job like this. So they find if all 15 million workers that were unemployed in the U.S. Uh, at the height of the Great Recession – um, the cost of the program would have been about $750 billion. Uh, they note that that's less than the stimulus package. Um, and they also uh, write that this is slightly less uh, than all the anti-poverty and subsistence programs that the U.S. already spends money on annually, which amount to about $800 billion. Uh, what do you think about this idea? Well, I always wonder what are the people supposed to do you know, what jobs are these? And I don't know if the proposal involves specifications of what kind of jobs there are, because there's a reason why people are unemployed, right? It's because there isn't demand for what they can offer, at least not at the moment. And there are you know, roughly two reasons for that. It could be a cyclical thing that, you know, the construction industry has tanked, uh, so builders don't get jobs. Or it could be a more permanent thing that some people's skills have just become obsolete, so you're a welder and uh, you know manufacturing is shrinking and it doesn't uh, there aren't those jobs at least in your part of the country anymore now it seems to me that in either case there are better policies than this to deal with it in the first case you know have federal spending on infrastructure to get construction going again for example or more generally just pump money into the economy to create the demand so that private sector jobs will increase because generally, probably the private sector is better at deciding what jobs somebody is suitable for and what jobs are needed in any one place than, than the public sector. If it's a sort of long-term jobs program for the chronically unemployed, I mean, I can see a role for it on the margin if it means that people who've fallen out of the labor force can come back in. But again, what sort of jobs are these going to be? Presumably not sort of bureaucratic jobs. Uh, I guess we're talking about simple manual assistance jobs. Of course, by all means, you know, have a sort of ability for people to take casual jobs as, you know, gardeners to embellish the city or something like that. But it may be that some of that money is, is better spent on other things. And, you know, some of the people who have been long-term unemployed, who've lost their jobs in manufacturing especially, uh, it's, it's not just that they can't find any jobs. It's that they can't find any job that they want because the jobs out there are not at all what they like to do and not very well paid. Think about one important fact. The big job growth over the next decade will be in what is often called pink-collar jobs. Low-skilled, but traditionally done by women in the care sector, in health. Um, there are a lot of jobs there. Some of them are paid reasonably well. A lot of men who would normally have gone into factory work are not going to be interested in those jobs. There's sort of a cultural shift we have to do. I mean, that's the sort of scale we have to think about. What sort of jobs would a federal jobs guarantee offer uh, would it be the needed jobs, such as in, in health and care? It's not clear that they would take them, you know. And if we could create that cultural shift from blue collar to pink collar, first step would be not to call it that, um, then it's not clear that we would need the federal job guarantee. We just need the jobs. The, the sense I got um, from the proposal is that 
for one thing, it would help to offset other structural inefficiencies in the economy. The best example of that uh, that I think they give is that there's a huge population of unemployable uh, black men who've been in prison mm. at some point in their lives who have trouble getting jobs, even jobs that they might be qualified for. And at least if the federal government provided these jobs, then this segment of the population, and again, it's quite big. I forget the exact number, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, not, in, it's yeah. not insignificant. Then that these men could get jobs. They could prove themselves in that way. They would also be able to make a bit of money, obviously. And then they'd get trained for some other profession once they moved on from their federally guaranteed job. Uh, another is the example you gave of health care, right? Caring for the elderly. No. I, I think not all of these jobs are going to carry that stigma forever, even if they have it right now. But because the medical sector is also rife with inefficiencies, at least if you provide these jobs, then it has some other spillover benefits as well. So number one, again, the people who get the jobs at least you know, get to reenter the labor force if they were struggling to do that before, um, or they have employment if they were in the labor force, but they just couldn't get a job. But also it ends up making um, long-term elderly care a bit cheaper for families. And this is something that a lot of families really do struggle with, right? Child care is another possibility. This is a big part of the reason that uh, I think women have been falling out of the labor force as well, is that child care is expensive. You know, So if you have another pool of workers to put into those jobs, then it has, again, uh, an extra effect. But it also has, finally, uh, and this is, I think, a big one, the effect of reducing uh, racial disparities. Uh, and the point they make is that the unemployment rate in the U.S. for African Americans uh, is about 8%. Right. If the overall unemployment rate were eight percent, we would all still be freaking out as we were when it climbed right. up to eight, nine and ten percent. Right. right? Yeah. And this, I think, um, would have uh, the effect of reducing those racial disparities and also because it acts as a kind of asset in its own right. Right. In other words, it offsets a bit of the inheritance inequality that exists throughout different parts of the population. Uh, and so anyways, I am myself not quite sure where I come down on this. I worry in particular about the possibility for the program itself to be massively inefficient and frankly to become corrupt. And I, I don't know exactly how it would work in practice, but I am, I am more open to it than I think I would have been in the past. I like the idea that it targets employment directly and it'll effectively give us a chance to see all the things that we can't quite learn when the economy is not at full employment, right? Uh, there's a potential for that to happen. So I'm, I'm still sort of trying to sure. swim, through these, swim through this ocean. That's why I wanted to bring it up on the podcast I, I, because it's out there now and people are talking about it, even though I think there's some confusion about how to think about it, and that includes myself. Yeah. No, I mean, just very briefly, I don't think anyone disagrees that more jobs – it's important to have more jobs. I don't think the U.S. economy is at full employment. Unemployment is low, but employment is too low, too. Quite right about the higher unemployment rates among African Americans and some other groups. And what we know is that in a cyclical recovery, those worse-off groups tend to be the last to benefit. So you would have to run the economy even hotter in order to, to get jobs for those. So, so, of course, we want jobs. It's just a question of whether a formal guarantee is the way to do it. If you can create the jobs and hire people, by all means, go and do that. If you can find good jobs, that makes sense. But then do you really need the guarantee? And if you have a guarantee, but you're not actually creating the jobs or making them happen in the private sector, then what's the guarantee worth? So I'm just wondering if the means is right for the end, even if we agree on the end. 
Yeah, and I, I don't know the answer to that question. It, it's something that I plan to look into a little bit more closely this and year. Listeners, I hope, will write yeah. in with their with their Ab- Absolutely. Okay, um, final uh, topic that we're going to go into in a bit of depth, and then we're going to do a kind of a speed round with the others because we're running a bit short on time. Uh, industrial policy in developed economies, and I want to make a very clear distinction for our listeners. Industrial policy for emerging or developing economies uh, has an okay track record when it's pursued in a certain way. It's usually thought of as the East Asian model, but it was also the same model that Germany followed at the end of the 19th century and which the United States followed at the very beginning of its existence as a country. Uh, It has an okay track record. It involves some protectionism, some picking of winners and losers, uh, state-directed finance to certain sectors until they're built up. But it always involves economies who are catching up to the technology frontier, the production frontier of other countries that are already ahead. The track record for industrial policy Okay, for state activism in the economy, for developed countries, countries that are already at the productive frontier, is a lot more mixed, and I I would even say it's not very good. But since we're here to talk about Mm. ideas that uh, could work and that are being reassessed in light of what's happened in the last few years, in the last decade, I think it's worth looking at the possibility that an industrial policy of some kind, maybe of a different sort than the one we usually discuss, could work even for advanced economies. What do you think? I always find it very confusing to think about industrial policy. I mean, partly for the reasons you set out, a policy that is good for industry in a rich country, a leading country such as the U.S., is not really a policy that targets industries, right? That That's kind of where we kind of start off on the wrong footing even in the term. The sort of things that are good for advanced industry, which is sort of what we want, involve skills policy to have more high-skilled workers, for example, who can you know, handle the machines that are coming on stream that increase productivity. It's that sort of thing. It's not trying to either subsidize specific industries, as you mentioned, in, in developing countries, poorer countries. They've sometimes been able to use protectionism to protect infant industries, to let industries grow. But they always grow into a bigger world that's out there. The, the rich world is that bigger world, so it has, to, uh, it has to find another way to do it. So subsidizing specific industries tends, tends to not work because it protects the industries of the past rather than the industries of the future. So the, the problem is industrial growth is not the same as growth in industry jobs. And people often mix the two up. They think, you know, if we had stronger industry, we'd have more manufacturing jobs. Not necessarily true. A thriving manufacturing sector is one that becomes more and more productive. And that means it needs fewer and fewer workers. So you've seen in every rich country, you've seen a combination of two things. Industrial jobs falling. It's just as true in Germany as in the U.S., for example, even though that's seen as an industrial power. Industrial jobs falling and industrial production going up. So industry hasn't disappeared. It just doesn't need workers so much anymore. And uh, what, what industrial policy needs to take in over itself is that any growth in industry means letting some industries go and letting other industries take their place, which will be more productive, higher paid, more scientifically and technologically advanced. So I'm all for policies that might help that shift happen, 
that involves improving the skills in the population, R&D, spending, spending on research and development, you know, infrastructure probably. And the U.S. has been pretty good at this. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't delude ourselves and think that that means less of a structural change. It probably means more of a structural change. Yeah, uh, the point about uh, the naming is actually, uh, I think, a very good one and I think one that's underappreciated. Mm -hmm. In other words, referring to something as industrial policy now carries quite a negative connotation when you're talking about it uh, in the developed economy context, right? But when you hear something like, research and development policy. Yes. Now, that's an idea you might be able to get behind. And the U.S., I think a lot of people don't know this, actually does have quite a few federal agencies with venture capital arms of their own. Uh, they're meant to partner with companies, startups in the private sector uh, in order to avoid uh, the charges that usually come from market fundamentalists that the U.S. is involving itself too much in the economy. And these investments have actually a pretty good track record. Uh, they tend to operate in quite a decentralized fashion, which I think makes sense for the U.S., right? And again, this is one where I'm a little bit confused on because I, I don't know what a big push into research and development policy would mean. It might just mean shoving a whole lot more money at it, right? Tax dollars at it. And maybe that would work and maybe not. It's very hard, again, because they tend to operate in such a decentralized way to get some kind of a cost-benefit analysis of this. But it's also possible that a strict cost-benefit analysis might be the wrong way of doing it. Because if you look at the gains from, say, the internet, right, whose origins lie in investments made by the U.S. Defense exactly. Department, right, the gains from that probably swamp all of the losses made and all the other investments that the U.S. has made uh, into you know, the tech sector. But right? let's think about the consequences of that. It means that the U.S. has some of the biggest tech companies, in the, the biggest tech companies in the world, clearly the leading tech industry. And one effect of that has been greater automation in other industries. Mm -hmm. you know, digitization, but well, the electronics industry first, and, and then digitization with the computer revolution. All of that has helped and will continue to help make do with fewer workers in more traditional goods-producing industries. So it's been a, a fantastic achievement. I mean, the technological progress is, is astounding. Our lives have been changed by it. But it doesn't mean that there are more jobs for unskilled factory workers in the Midwest. Uh, just on R&D, the U.S. actually does pretty well in an international uh, perspective in terms of spending money on R&D. In terms of government spending, it's you know sort of around the average uh, in terms of total spending, including pri the private sector, it's near the top, better than the average OECD rich country average. The two countries that spend the most, public and private, on R&D are Israel and South Korea. And you can tell these countries have pretty thriving industrial sectors, but at the high-tech level, right? They manage to progress. So this money works. Although I wonder if that's too narrow a framework to look at it as, well... The U.S. made these investments, and it turned out that all of these other industries were automated, and so obviously they employ fewer workers. A point made by Gene Sperling in a speech that has now been totally ignored in 2013 when he was head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors for uh, President Obama was that if you look at manufacturing, a manufacturing renaissance actually has quite a few potential spillover effects as well, right? So it's not just the workers directly employed by factories, by manufacturing firms, but also the accompanying design jobs that it creates, the legal and consulting services. I don't know if that's 
if a man, quote unquote manufacturing renaissance is exactly what we should be mm-hmm. pursuing, not in those explicit terms necessarily, right? It doesn't have to be manufacturing the way it's traditionally thought of, where you have big machines and people moving those machines and creating, you know, these bulk products. Uh, I I don't know if that's a world that can ever be recaptured or that we really should be trying to recapture it. I think I think there's a, there's a big risk that we end up just regressing. Um, rather than doing something that'll be uh, of a long-term benefit um, for American workers, I'm just not sure. But I'm I'm okay with looking at that anew uh, in light of what's happened recently. Okay, so those are sort of the three big radical ideas. Now uh, I'm just gonna throw three more at you. All right, and we're each just gonna say yep. one thing we that we either like or don't like about these things. The big takeaway we should have from it. Okay, number one, a big deregulatory agenda targeting the supply side? I think there's a lot to be said for it. Uh, I don't like the people who poo-poo this idea that you could have a higher permanent growth rate in the U.S. Uh, One thing that's really striking in the last 15 years, and you see this in every rich country, is that productivity increases at the best companies has continued to be strong. We have slow productivity growth, but it's because the the sort of middling firms aren't as good as picking up best practice from the best ones as before. But innovation at the top is continuing. There must be some structural reasons for that. If you can have deregulation that will improve that, some of that might have to do with the financial system and, and how companies get, get finance so that they can expand with better techniques. I think that's important. So I, I think that's just one example to say I think there's a lot of potential to improve the growth rate. And surely some of that will have to do with deregulation. But it has to be smart. You know, we have to see where, what is it that's stopping greater innovation, greater productivity growth, and fix those regulatory problems, not just sort of sweeping deregulation for the sake of it. Yeah, I, I still think that something like occupational licensing has had a more pernicious effect on the U.S. potential growth rate than people realize. I think finding some way of doing away with these absurd restrictions on who can get a job as a teeth whitener or as a barber yeah. uh, could, could really help quite a bit. This is a big theme in the uh, Obama White House economics yes. team. And, and it's clear that, it, that that has gone along with greater market power for individual firms, which isn't good for efficiency or for jobs. Next, counterintuitively, could more trade and more immigration actually have a helpful inequality-reducing effect? I think it really could. Uh, you know, we've been talking about these structural shifts from some industries to other industries. And, and the thing is that what's happened many times uh, is that as you open up your economy, you obviously have a painful restructuring. But it's sort of the bad and low-paying industries that shrink and new and exciting ones that open up. So this is what happened after, uh, after NAFTA, right? So textile did really poorly in the U.S. But do you really want a textile industry in the U.S.? Car manufacturing increased, right? Pharmaceuticals increased, so, you know, some of, the, some of the more technologically able industries, and I include cars in that because there's a lot of potential for technological growth, probably benefit from the bigger markets that opening up to trade increases. If you can have services trade as well, and that's what modern trade deals try to do, then there's an even greater potential for countries that are abundant in skills like the U.S. Of course, there will be harm for the people who don't naturally find their way into those sectors. So we will need these other policies. But we shouldn't forget about all the jobs that are created by export opportunities in a trade deal, in addition to those that may be lost in import competing industries. Immigration. Immigration, I think there's a similar argument uh, to be made, which is that uh, if you have low-skilled immigration, that actually tends to give room 
or to encourage natives to upskill. You often see this. Uh, it's hard to study and isolate the effects, but, but you often find that low-skill immigrants come in, they help boost local demand, and because they sort of crowd out uh, the natives, the natives move on, but they are crowded up, if you like, in the value chain. So, you know, maybe a, a native worker will get a job as a supervisor, whereas before it would just be a, a sort of bottom-level job. But because there are immigrants coming in, they get a higher job. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't automatically happen. But that's the sort of thing you want to achieve. Here, here to all that. I can't improve on it. So let's go to the last topic. This one requires, again, a bit of explanation. Monetary policy trying to run an economy hot in the aftermath of a deep recession. And here's, uh, here's why I'm asking about this one. Towards the end of last year, Janet Yellen uh, gave a speech in which she looked at all of the different research on this and essentially took an agnostic position on it. But because it was a speech by Janet Yellen, we all started to take seriously the possibility that monetary policy in the U.S. might even try to temporarily run the U.S. economy hot to offset some of the damage from the Great Recession. Okay, She has since walked away from it, but I still think it's an idea worth discussing. Here's the mechanism in which this is supposed to work, right? It's not just that when there are idle resources – a dollar spent ends up producing more than a dollar of output, right? Because you essentially put somebody to work that wasn't making an income before, and then that person has money to spend on goods and services, and then those people that make that money spend the money somewhere else, and on and on and on, right? There's another mechanism in place here that she talked about, and it has to do with expectations, which is that running an economy hot now raises potential growth rate of the economy in the future, which feeds back to investment in the present. So it can have this kind of expectations effect that runs from the present to the future and back to the present. This to me was really fascinating. It's something that uh, Martin Wolf talked about on this podcast when he was on. And I was happy to see it getting more intellectual cred when she gave that speech. And I was a little bit sad that she recently uh, walked it back. But what do you think about this? Yeah, I I was sad too. She did pour cold water on the interpretations that, that said this is a sign that the Fed will be will be more dovish. I mean, she was very clear later that I was only talking about how it's important to do more research on this. But there is a whole sort of camp in economic policy research and and commenting who think one should run what they call a high-pressure economy. And they say this is sort of what was happening in the 90s when things were going really well in the U.S., Um, there are idle resources in the U.S. So let's not, you know, you, you said it's not only that, but let's not forget it's also that. You know, too few people work Prime age people are in work compared to where the U.S. was 15 years ago. Clearly, there's potential for more. The fact that monetary policymakers both here and other countries can't drive up inflation just shows that we're not pushing hard enough, in my view. But in addition to that, because of the mechanism you you outlined, we know that investment is very low. That's part of why productivity growth is low. And the best explanation for that is that companies think that they wouldn't be able to sell if they produce more output. There won't be the demand for it. And conversely, probably they will invest more if they think that demand growth will be high. And that kind of makes the whole definition of this concept of capacity a bit wobbly, right? Because if we say, well, we should, uh, we should push the economy up to capacity but not higher because then we get inflation, then we run it too hot, we overheat it. But if capacity itself responds to the pace at which we boost demand – 
then we can do that and it will capacity will move up so we have more to catch up with and there's a there's possibly a, a good uh, predecessor for this an example so Narayana Kuchalakota who was uh, the head of the Minneapolis Fed uh, and was in the Federal Reserve until about 2 years ago he has pointed to the great depression so you had very low productivity growth even negative productivity growth in the first half of the 30s and then you got a demand push and within a few years you got a total flip and you got huge productivity growth. His view is something similar is going on now, and this measured productivity growth is not really, doesn't reflect a hard capacity constraint in the economy. The capacity constraint itself responds to demand conditions. So supply and demand aren't independent. Sometimes you can push demand higher and supply will respond as a result. We probably are in that situation now, I would think. Uh, I certainly think there's little to lose by giving it a try, so I'd be very much for it. should note before we wrap up, though, that the separability of supply and demand was an assumption in economic models you know, for a very long time. Uh, it still is, really. Uh, and that is something that I think is, is you know, primed to be overthrown. I think that's quite right, at least if we try it and it works. If we yes. don't try it, that'll be sort of a missing data point. <laughs> but here's to hoping. Uh, Martin Sandu, definitely subscribe to the Free Lunch newsletter. Uh, it comes out every morning. It's fantastic. Uh, his book is Europe's Orphan. Martin, thanks for coming in. This Thank was a lot you. of fun. This was a lot of fun. And you can give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is plus one country code because we're in the U.S. for our overseas listeners. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. Rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. I'm not kidding when I say it really does help people find out about the show. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Martin, what's your Twitter handle? At M.E. Sandbu. At M.E. Sandbu. Uh, you can find show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. And finally, the only federal job guarantee I want is that I get to collaborate with the amazing Amy Keene, producer and editor of this podcast. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. <laughs>